0: And scholars. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I am Nicoletta, and I am a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. Oh, and I'm Simone, uh, her friend who likes to talk about fucking. Hi. (laughs) You do so many other things. (laughs) Um, And this week, we welcome uh, Benjamin DaCosta, who is a dynamic community activist and queer pastor's kid from Chicago. After seven years of sex work from working at Pulse nightclub to international escorting, he now spends his time amplifying the voices of marginalized communities and promoting sexual health and wellness with his platform, especially as it pertains to um, HIV. Welcome, Benji. Hello. Hi. Ah. And we were so honored because Benji reached out to us um, on social media and we love hearing from people who listen to our show, who want to be on our show. So if you are listening and would like to join the rest of our amazing guests, you can always email us at slutsandscholars at Gmail. Yeah. I'm fangirling you, right you... now.
1: Oh my God, stop. Yes. Yes. How did you find us? This is so flattering. So
2: this, is, this is kind of like my guilty pleasure of when I'm driving in the car, I love listening to Vivid XM. And yes. I was listening. I was listening to one of your guys' episodes when you were talking about uh, politics and sex work and then sexual health. Like, it was just a whole intersectionality. And I was like, oh my God, these are my kind of girls.
1: Hmm.
0: I love it. You're like the first person I think that we've talked to that hasn't called in
1: to Vivid that like actually found us from Vivid. (laughs) I think you're definitely like the first guy who found us from Vivid who's not asking us to jerk them off.
2: (laughs) I find all of that so fascinating. Not all of
1: our callers ask that.
2: I mean, if
0: yes. there's anything wrong, and with we lying like to get totally support off. them calling on other shows, but you know, it's fun. <laughs> exactly.
1: Okay, let's get down. Actually. Let's get down to brass tacks. Um, Benji, queer pastor's kid. Like, what is? What do you mean by that?
2: Like, what's the deal? So, um, I since birth, ha- all I've known was church. And so my father is a pastor of a very well-known church and he um, just throughout my life has always been this father figure. And when I came into myself and found my queer identity, it was like an intersectionality of, am I a Christian? Am I gay? What am I? And so I'm learning even today how to merge those two identities mm. and to really find what it means to be a queer pastor's kid because there's so polar opposites, particularly in this political society that we live in, of either you have to be a Christian or you have to be gay, but you can't be both.
1: That's so hard. How old,
0: yeah, how old were you? You said when you came into your queer identity, like when did you realize? Um,
2: so what actually, I started realizing it when I was probably like five or six when I would watch wrestling, I would watch WCW on, <laughs> on Saturday morning. And I was like, oh my God, these dudes are fucking hot. And, yes. I, got, and I, like, I felt like really attracted to them, but not in a sexual way. Just like something about these men are really attractive to me. And so as you grow older and as you find yourself, um, you start kind of exploring things. And so throughout my teenage years, I would explore with like friends and we would like jerk off and like kind of play with each other but still hide under this whole I'm straight but I'm still playing with guys and um, when I started becoming an adult it was when the shame and the stigma of being gay in the church really started Mm. to affect me and so I actually um, I believe it was when I was 19 I enrolled myself into conversion therapy to try to like fight it because of (sighs) everything that I was hearing on Sunday morning was a direct contradiction to my identity. And I was like, okay, something's wrong with me and I need to fix it and God can make it mm. all better and like, you know, sham wow it all away. And uh-huh. the, and then I was in it for six months and it was probably the darkest six months of my life. And I just remember every single day that you're in that program, you're being told you your identity and your whole presence is invalid and wrong and that it's immoral and all these things and it's just being drilled into you morning noon and night and
0: it's just so upsetting to me that like conversion therapy is still something that like people can Mm -hmm. access i know in the like sex positive therapy bubble that i'm in it's seen as like totally unethical and like illegal in some Mm -hmm. ways in terms of practice um but obviously you found it and like i would we would love to hear more about what that was like. Yeah, especially because yeah.
1: you signed yourself up for it. That's what I think is mm-hmm. so fascinating. So mm-hmm. I'm really curious, like what, is a, yeah. what, like, what is a session like? What is a day like? Like, play by play.
2: So you basically are isolated from your social circle. And in the morning, you go to morning service, which is like a, kind of just like your typical Sunday morning service, except it's seven days a week. Um, and, and then, this is an
1: inpatient thing like are you living there
2: yeah so um, it's uh, oh. no it's not like impatient like it's kinda so you're living in a communal area but it's not like where you can't go wherever you wanna go they just strongly advise against it wow so there's no media no you have your cell phone so you can talk to your friends and stuff um, they they encourage you to disconnect your social media, uh, like just really kind of uh, isolate yourself and ingrain yourself in that program so that you're not being distracted or tempted, in their words, uh, from outside influences. Um, and then you have small groups, which is where you are in a group of about five to 10 other uh, LGBTQ identified people who are wanting to pray the gay away, whether it's they were sent there or they voluntarily went there. Um, And you're basically... Wow. It's like, I wouldn't say it's like NA, like a fucked up NA for LGBT people where you just share like, I'm really struggling with like being gay today. And like, uh, I remember one guy saying that he was reading the Bible and had a sexual thought about Jesus and he had to uh confess that to us so that he could feel better.
1: Oh my god, I've had so many sexual thoughts about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's a Jewish <laughs> thing. He just like always, he just like always is all like ripped and shit, you know, when he's like yeah. on the cross. <laughs> yeah, like Passion of the Christ. Yeah. That was it's such like kind a of sexy. homoerotic
2: movie.
1: Oh my God. I didn't see The Passion of the Christ, I think. I had a. We should watch it together. And um, I
0: have a teacher who met his husband because they did a high school play together, which I think was Passion of the Christ. And he said that one of them got a boner that while they were like putting him up on the cross for the play. Oh, are let me kidding? find out. No, it's He's like the like, like, St. BDSM. Andrew's cross.
1: Oh my God! Totally, it's yeah, like Jesus right? on the cross. Oh yeah. There's a lot of hot people in the Bible. Oh, wow, that's wild. Like Mary. So where the people that also. are the people
0: that are putting these on? Like where do they? Think being queer or gay comes from? Like, do they think it's like the devil? Do they think it's just mm-hmm. a sin, and you like you're gonna have it forever, and you're just supposed to like not act on it? Like, what were their
2: views? They think that as long as you become consecrated and focused on the 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 morality of life, um, that you can get rid of this feeling or this temptation, because in their mind. There's like three different ways that you can uh, become gay in their eyes. The first one is uh, from what they call generational curses. So like things that your parents did that (laughs) would fucked up, created the fucked up life for you. The second one (laughs) is uh, if you are living in a fatherless household and that you were raised by feminine energy, that you become gay. And then the third one. Yeah. And then the third one is like somehow you were sexually abused and that you because of your abuser you caught the gay
1: damn <laughs> oh my god caught the gay um yeah. and is is the uh is the idea behind like queer women that like they grew up in a motherless household or is it like still the or do they just like not acknowledge that women can be gay also
2: well <laughs> they do like, there thing. was lesbians in there and the thing was was <sighs> that a lot of them were more masculine identified lesbians who Mm-hmm. They they felt like they had too much masculine energy around them. And that uh, it was because of father issues or sexual abuse as well. Um, that was like wow. a, common, a common trend mm. uh, across the program.
1: Obviously, it didn't work for you. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah, but did you feel like when you were doing it, that it was working? Like, because you were doing it for six months. And so six months, you're having—you say you have this mass every morning. And you're, like, living in this space with all these people trying to get rid of their identity— um, and then you're confessing about how hard it is to be gay every day. Like, did you ever start to feel like it was working?
2: No, because at the end of the day, I would still jack off and watch porn on my phone. Did you kiss Did you kiss with, <laughs> so, you kiss with no. other people there? No, well, the thing is is that there there were people I at that time, I wasn't playing with other people within the program, but there were people in the program playing with each other. And then coming nah. the next day and crying their eyes out. Oh.
0: Hmm.
1: Oh. And so you stayed in it for six months. And then because you were like, fuck this, I'm gay. Or you were like, okay, I'm not anymore. So I'm done.
2: Well, I got to such a place where I was so, um, so confused. And so like I was in a depression. And I was like, you know what? Mm. I, I never gave myself the opportunity to really fully live out my life as a gay man. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go and I'm going to try and explore this side of my identity because I explored the other side very deeply. I want to explore the gay side and see what that's about. And then I left the, um, the program and then became a go-go dancer. Like straight yeah, away? Straight out the program, moved to Orlando and became a go-go dancer.
0: Yes. How did you find out about that opportunity? So
2: I wanted to move back to Orlando because before I moved to the program, I was living in Orlando as a youth leader. I was doing a lot of work with the church, with youth and adolescents. And um, when I moved away, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take this time to like focus on me, my Christianity and spirituality. And then I always knew that the clubs and bars were hiring and that, that it was easy money to make like just... Dancing for a couple of hours a night and making cash—that's
0: awesome. I'm just like blown away that you were able to make that transition, and I can imagine there was probably a lot of like self-loathing and just shame. And I wonder like how you became confident enough to be a go-go dancer.
1: I just am curious about like the cost of this and like how much you like how much does this cost Mm. and like how that works because I'm just fascinated. By this business model, I guess.
2: For this particular program, it was a flat fee that you pay. And they did it in, um, like, semesters. So, like, it was an ongoing program, but you just paid per six months. And so I paid the six months up front. And then at the end of the program, I was like, you know what? I'm not coming back. This isn't for me. Like, I don't feel like this is my path. I feel like this is um, hindering my true identity. And so Uh, um there's some people who will charge by session or like it's very very like fluid in that whole environment because it just depends on the program but
1: how much did you pay Mm -hmm.
2: i paid around six hundred dollars uh just for the program and that's for the books and the sessions but that's not including like housing food like your living expenses
1: yeah wow Okay, sorry. Now we can move on to how you blossomed into the beautiful butterfly. Yeah, so. Yeah, so
0: then after you moved back to make that $600 back Mm -hmm. by being a go-go dancer. In one night. (laughs) Like, I'm curious how, yeah. Exactly. So where did you dance
2: first? So I danced at this bar in Orlando called Savoy. Um, It was like this little like twinkie gay bar that it was where a whole bunch of older men would come and just kind of creep on younger boys and try to hire them as clients. Um, And I was really naive because I didn't know how sex and fluidity and my gayness and all this kind of intersected. So I'm just going there just for the fun of dancing and trying to make friends, like genuine friendships. And I have all these old men coming up to me. And then um, I did that for about a week or so. And then I went to Pulse and I became a shop person, front door dancer, kind of swirly mix. Um, and I worked there for off and on for three and a half years.
0: And how long after you were working at Pulse did they have the the horrible uh, shooting? It was about
2: two years after. Um, however, the crazy thing is, is that I still knew thirteen people who were killed that night. Oh, yeah. so sorry, Ugh, That's so Benji. awful. And the cra- and
0: for people who somehow like haven't heard of this, it was a horrific, what I would call domestic terrorism, um, mass shooting at a nightclub, leaving lots of people in the LGBT, whether they were allies, dancers, workers, attendees, um, you know, dead, and it was it was horrific. Um, and since there's been just a lot of crazy things happening in our world, including there's been like 300 mass shootings in, or over 300 shootings in like 300 days. And like something I'm really curious about, like is, do you have any advice for people dealing with this or adjacent to it? Like one recently that affected our community was the shooting at Borderline. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Nicoletta and grew up I right wonder now. if you have any, any, yeah, I grew up going there and I wonder if you have any tips or insight for people like, how to talk to folks who survived that, you know, as someone who used to work there, like you know, for community members. I,
2: for me, I it took me almost a year after the shooting to really process everything. Um, I remember mm-hmm. that week. Um, I w- the morning the shooting happened, I was actually on the road headed for a speaking engagement, and I woke up and I was headed to O'Hare Airport in Chicago, and I. The first thing I saw on my Facebook, because that's something that I do every morning, apparently. is just, first thing I open is Facebook. And the very first post that it... Same. (laughs) I deleted
1: Facebook like four days ago because I found myself doing that too. And I was like, no! And so... Anyway. The very first post
2: I woke up to, it was like four o'clock in the morning my time. And it was, um, of the the club posted, um, everybody get out and keep on running. No other details. And I'm like... And I'm like, okay, you know, there might have been a fire or a fight or just, you know, something that happens in clubs on any given weekend where they just are like, everybody get out. Um, And so I was like, okay, no big deal. And then I refresh my feed. And the next thing I know, I see people saying, oh my God, this is serious, you guys. Like people who are there in the building, like posting, saying like kind of what their experience was. And so I'm looking everywhere. I turn on CNN, MSNBC, trying to like find a channel that is like broadcasting this. And it took about 30 minutes before I found a live feed on Facebook of the local news. And all you saw was cop cars um, just all down the street. And so I I get wow. into my Uber to the airport and on the way to the airport, I just see um, like the CNN uh, live feed where they they kind of do the loop over and over and over. Uh, and on that loop, I see people that I know, and I'm like, oh my god, I know this person. This person got shot, and they like there was uh, one of my friends who was a bartender. He was being carried out because he got shot in the leg, and I'm just like blown mm-hmm. away. And then it it still felt like some weird movie. Like I just I was like, this isn't real. Like of all the places that these shootings happen the place that I called home. And that was home for me when I had no other home. And uh, when I get to the airport is when they uh, start calling it a mass casualty situation. And that in the police terms, that just means that a lot of people got shot. Uh, Mm. not Nobody killed or anything like that. And so by the time I get to my gate, I look at the screen again and then they start saying, okay, six people are killed, a whole bunch of people injured. Um, and then while I'm getting on the plane, I start having media call me because I had on my Facebook profile and I believe like my LinkedIn or something where it showed I worked for Pulse. And so I guess in those kind of situations, media is looking for you and wanting to get details of what you know and et cetera. So I land, uh, in the city of my engagement and then they start saying 20 people are dead. A whole bunch of people are still unaccounted for. And then when I got to my hotel, they said 49. Um, And then, and I'm sitting in the front row of my speaking engagement and I'm getting text messages because that whole day was just group message after group message after group message. Have you heard from this person? Is this person alive? And it's just like, it's the most unimaginable thing. And so here I am putting on this facade for this engagement, but finding out message after message of who's dying and finding out who of my friends are still alive and who died. And uh, when I got on stage was when the city actually started posting the official names. And the very first one was the very first person that I encountered in my queer identity moving back to Orlando. And so that one just was like, a sucker punch to my throat. And so, yeah. Wow. So, the very next day I flew down and the beautiful thing was the amount of love that you see and community. And so, I'm not sure if this is how it it was felt in California this past week, but the the sense of unity mm-hmm. and community in situations of tragedy is one of the most beautiful things you can ever experience as a human being um and i you know we saw that in 9-11 we saw it in katrina we saw it in all these different situations um and for this particular situation the most beautiful thing was everybody put aside their bullshit of their prejudice or their reservations or their judgment against our identities and just knew like okay this was mm-hmm. a really fucked up situation that happened and we need to come together as a community and show our love. And so um, one of the most beautiful things that happened for me as a individual was the church that I was going to in Orlando. Uh, they actually disowned me for being gay. And that was like years prior to the shooting. And I went back to that that church that Sunday morning because I needed a, pr- a place to like process and heal and grieve and just, I, I needed to see familiar faces that I knew that were, even though they had some fucked yeah. up judgments against me, I just needed to be around those, those people. And the, uh, during that service, the pastor who disowned me and called me a disgrace turned around and apologized and had the entire church get on their knees and ask for repentance from God for their judgment against the LGBT community. And they came straight to me and gave me a hug and said, I'm sorry. Wow, what was that like? That was like, that was the moment in that intersectionality of my identity that it all came together. Like the the hurt of being a gay person in the church, Mm -hmm. but also getting that freedom from my hurt at the same time, because it was like, okay, this is the person that I looked up to and called like a a spiritual father figure for so many years to then turn around and basically know that he was wrong and affirm my identity as a gay person. And to that moment, I just felt like a healing in myself, but also a release from that, that shame and that stigma that I had so that I could fully live my queer identity to the fullest.
1: Yeah
0: wow thank you for sharing that like horrific experience and your story in it and it's I was like yeah, tearing like, up for sure yeah, when you were talking about and all of it
1: and yeah it's it's really incredible but what's also really incredible is what you do with your life now as it relates to like as you said like removing stigma and shame and like supporting the queer community um and I would love to hear more about that work that you do, because um, you, you are an HIV-positive, um, but you identify as like a, an HIV-negative uh, HIV ally, right? Yes. Am I framing that correctly?
2: Yeah, so I am a person who does not live with HIV. However, I do uh, amplify the messages of uh, experiences that people who are living with HIV do have.
1: hmm and do and you so,
2: fe- um, oh, go ahead. No, no, please. Oh, no, I was going to say, um, one of the things that I really have been sharing recently is just, uh, around HIV criminalization and how hmm. fucked up the laws are in regards to that, particularly when it comes to the studies that are coming out now around HIV transmission, um, and showing that regardless it, of your, uh, If you're HIV positive or negative, as long as you are undetectable and do not have a viral load, that you cannot transmit HIV to another person. And people who are living with HIV who are undetectable are still being criminalized Mm -hmm. as if they are recklessly transmitting HIV. Yeah, we have an awesome past episode for
0: listeners to check out as World AIDS Day uh, is coming up with, um, I I think the title of it is um, HIV Princess. Um, And it talks about basically, you know, how you can take a pill a day, um, you know, and pretty
1: much have and be undetectable. No Um, detectability of the virus. Yeah, Yeah, be undetectable and have unprotected sex with partners and not pass it on.
2: Absolutely. There's no reason
1: to criminalize uh, being HIV positive. I'm curious. I haven't heard about this. Like when you say criminalized, do you mean um, like consequences of uh, kind of criminalizing behavior surrounding HIV positive folks? Or is there like something new Mm -hmm. on the books that's actually happening?
2: Well, it's been existing um, since the HIV epidemic has happened. It was um, the lawmaker's response out of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, there have been cases, particularly around people of color, Um, and gay people of color that have been criminalized um, just for not using a condom. Uh, The person that they were having sex with did not contract HIV. However, they still pursued criminal charges against the person for not disclosing their HIV status to that partner.
0: Whoa. Do you know where those laws are in effect? Like which state? Oh, yes.
2: Um, If you...
0: That you can, like, try to sue someone for having sex with you if they have HIV? Yes.
2: Um, there, uh, Missouri is one of them. Um, let me see here. There's also um, Georgia is another one. Uh, there, there's actually, if you go to pause.com, on pause.com, they have a whole mm-hmm. list of every law in every state for HIV criminalization. Uh, that yeah, perpetuate the persistent public perception that those with HIV are inherently dangerous,
0: yeah, we have a rule in um so as a, I just got licensed as a therapist, and there's like a legal ethical duty to warn if someone is going to like enact harm on another person. um it's called like a, a tariffs off is what it's called based on a um, a criminal mm-hmm. case um so like if someone comes into my office and says like i'm gonna go shoot somebody in the face after this and you have like enough details, you would basically, you know, call 911 and, you know, alert the victim uh, or potential victim if you could. Um, And the thing that we talk about in class is if HIV applies to this and in California, at least it doesn't. So we, you know, confidentially maintain that. So if someone says like I have HIV and I'm going to go have unprotected sex with people, um, that's not like a duty to warn somebody. But Um, So I just think it's interesting to compare the different different mm-hmm. rules and regulations around the
2: country. And it's also like, I feel, especially for sex workers, um, it's kind of like a, a fucked up situation. Because if you post on your ads that you're HIV positive, chances are clients aren't going to want to book you. Mm. And mm. so out of protection, think- even though you're virally suppressed, you're taking your medicine you're, you're completely healthy, they're forcing you basically to out yourself, even though it, like, I, I've yet to see people who just kind of go willy nilly are being forced to say they have diabetes, they have cardiovascular disease, like, it's the exact same thing. It's a chronic condition.
1: Right. Um,
0: so as someone who is HIV negative, I mean, I heard that before all of this, when you were younger, you were doing a lot of, like, youth work and advocacy. How did you decide that you wanted to be an advocate for HIV-positive communities? It
2: actually happened um, when I was living in Orlando. I started dating somebody who um, I fell in love with. It was kind of like my first love. And the the thing that happened was he became very ill, and he— um, he came to my job one night. He was like, I can't breathe. I need to go to the emergency room. So I rushed him to the emergency room. He's like sitting in the lobby, shivering. And I just knew something was wrong. So uh, six hours later, uh, he was finally seen by a doctor. And when he was seen by a doctor, <clears throat> they did the uh, the your, your typical screening. They found out he had pericarditis. I had no clue what that was. Um, and I, uh, they admitted him and started doing these tests. And when they did that, uh, this was back in 2010, 2011. So LGBT people are still being marginalized in the healthcare industry to where you couldn't stay overnight with your partner uh, because I wasn't a spouse or a family member. They wanted to kick me out. And I was like, well, I can't legally get married. So it's kind of... Mm discriminating against me because I have no choice to stay with this partner who is giving their consent for me That's to awful. stay in their room. Uh, and so a uh, couple of days later, they performed tests, HIV tests, things like that. Uh, his first test came back negative. And then it was a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. And uh, I was sleeping in the chair uh, of his room mm-hmm. and The doctor walks in and says, oh, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. Uh, Your test came back positive for HIV um, and then just walked out the room with no kind of counseling, no kind of like follow-up, no, no, nothing. And so, yeah. And so I just, that, that day is like seared in my brain. And so I was sitting there and I was like, wait, what? Like, did she just really do that? And so my partner looks at me and the first thing he said is you're going to leave me, aren't you? And I got in the bed and I held him and I was like, no, you're the same person you were two minutes ago. Like I have no, no, like no different feelings about you. And at the time I had no clue what HIV was. So I was just like, oh, this is just like something and everything's good. And like, you'll just get out the hospital on. You know, we'll live our best life. So, a couple of hours later.
0: Is this that because you weren't taught growing up about oh. like anything relating to sex in your like
2: religious Absolutely. upbringing? Absolutely. That's exactly it. what it was. I was I never was really... given the birds and the bees talk.
1: Got it. So, because I, I was curious, like, why you felt like you didn't succumb to the stigma surrounding HIV. And it's in part because you knew nothing about it. And so not only Mm -hmm. did you not know like the factual stuff that if you're undetectable, there's not a big deal, but you didn't even get the burden of the uh, hyperbole of the danger surrounding HIV positive individuals, which are patently false. That's so interesting.
2: Absolutely. And uh, the crazy thing was, was that in that moment, I could care. I cared less about myself. I was like, I don't care. Like, hmm. put me aside. I had no fear or no like heightened sense of I need to go get tested. Had I just, you heard like, of HIV bed, before? I, like, I had not.
1: You hadn't even heard of it.
0: Mm-mm. Wow, wow. So that just like really speaks to how like sheltered the community you were in. Yeah, was. my
2: parents like were super, super, super controlling of our media and so like i wasn't allowed to watch certain cartoons um music was off limits uh all these different things and so a couple of hours later in that hotel room or not the hotel room the hospital room um uh like a intervention specialist came in and was like okay well you need to get tested and i looked at him i was like what for
0: hours yeah. later hours yeah. later it was like That's so fucked up. I'm just like, I know most, I know it's, I don't want to say it's not their fault because I do think every health practitioner like needs to take responsibility for what the education they're getting is missing. But like most doctors, therapists, healthcare practitioners only get like one Mm -hmm. class on sex and sexuality. And obviously that was clear in this because they didn't even know what to say. They couldn't even stay in the room, like tolerate a conversation and you had to Mm -hmm. wait hours with your partner who was like terrified Mm -hmm. Um, to have somebody come in, and the first thing they said is, "Can you
2: get tested too?" That, and then also, um, the even more fucked up part that like boils my blood to this day is they marked his room biohazard, (gasps) and then came in in the full suit, like the full like infectious suit thing, like like it it was a fucking plague. Yeah.
1: When
0: was this? Was this like nineteen eighty? No, it was two thousand ten.
1: Oh my God.
2: What? So,
0: so they obviously had no idea right. about how this is transmitted. Absolutely. And so, and were you guys sexually active oh, together? Oh
2: my God. Yes. So, <laughs> the, <laughs> so <laughs> the crazy thing is
0: I mean, I'm just like, if you,
2: uh, so oh, we God. were both versatile people who were not using condoms. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'll get tested. I don't care. And like, I, yeah, I was just surprised that I didn't contract HIV just from the amount of sex that we were having unprotected and him having a viral load. However, the kind of um, saving grace in that situation was he is considered what's called an elite comptroller. So his body can fight the infection itself without the need of uh, medication. Huh. What is this? I'd never even heard of this. So there's a specific class of people who their bodies have a high enough immune function to where they can keep their body virally suppressed um, without having Mm. any sort of kind of opportunistic infection or anything like that. And they don't need medication until way later Mm. down in the line. Um, When they get older and their immune system starts to get a little bit more weaker, but for him, he didn't need medication for probably the first couple of years, um, and that was just kind of like what we found out later down the line of why I didn't contract HIV.
1: Interesting. So once you've learned about HIV and what it was, and you know you know the words like elite controller or opportunistic mm-hmm. infection, and you understand what it all mm-hmm. means now, um, how did that affect? Um, your relationship with him or just kind of how you thought about sex and stis
2: Well the thing that uh, our like our relationship dynamic changed a little bit because he became fearful of having sex with me because mm. he didn't want to transmit HIV yeah and so yeah
1: that's really He awesome. was
2: not fully educated on how to live as an HIV positive person and I wasn't educated on how to support a newly diagnosed HIV person, I just kind of like winged it. And like, I just made a, like a commitment. I was like, I'll go to all of your doctor's appointments. I'll go like wherever you need me to go. I'm there for you. Like hundred percent. And we just didn't know how to like navigate that space. And so there was months where we didn't have sex, no oral, no nothing. And it was just, I think that was a really hard space because. That takes a toll. Yeah. not, Not only on our dynamic, but also just our connection and our, our our sexuality and and just all of those kind of intersections of a relationship. And so he became a very kind of angry person because he was trying to find himself as a HIV positive person. And I didn't know how to support the anger in a healthy way. And I thought it was a personal thing against me. And it just it just became a very toxic situation. And I just Uh, eventually realized like this relationship isn't going to survive if we stay together in this moment. And so we went our separate ways. But for years, I felt so guilty because by the time we broke up, I knew what he was about to face, trying to redate in a world that doesn't understand HIV and Mm. the rejection and the, and all of that.
1: Yeah. That's
0: really hard. Why do you think it's, I mean, it sounds like you took that and obviously wanted to consider your, uh, sorry, to continue your advocacy. Um, why do you think it's so important for, uh, you know, HIV negative folks to, to be allies and to speak out for HIV positive people?
2: I think it's so important because we live in a day that uh, when we're a part of a generation that could see a potential cure for HIV, um, there's been so many advances in the past 20 to 30 years that we're starting to see like the studies that just came out about um, undetectable equals uninfectious. Uh, the studies around PrEP and mm-hmm. a single daily pill that can prevent HIV transmission. Uh, we're starting to uh, start to see kind of the, 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 the crumbs of studies of, where there's long-acting HIV treatment so people don't have to take a pill every single day. They could take just an injection or uh, take a pill once every three months. So we're getting to a point where we're revolutionizing that. And I think when HIV-negative people become educated on that, that starts to reduce the stigma and the shame around people who are living with HIV. Because I feel, and what I've heard throughout my advocacy, is that... It's hard to navigate in a space where they don't understand your condition and your diagnosis. They only understand the fear and the myths that have been spread throughout the media or throughout community or healthcare settings, all of those. And they're not getting the truth of what is out there. And so the first step mm-hmm. is um, I think HIV negative individuals can do is that they can support comprehensive sexual health education in schools. Yeah. Because that's the foundation. Um, the second thing is to start supporting your sexual and reproductive health centers um, because there's organizations like Planned Parenthood that are under attack. However, they're providing crucial sexual health to individuals who are both living with HIV, but also providing preventative services to those mm-hmm. who are not living with HIV. Exactly. And And I think that's like the biggest misconception is that sexual and reproductive health centers, the only thing people hear is abortion. However, people are not hearing about condom access, about testing, about getting treatment, all these things that are life-saving tools. And I think so many times people just kind of politicize it and not looking at the humanity of it all.
0: I think it's a generalization that what I'm going to say now, but I do think that people who are... Um, you know, more pro-life probably don't want to support those kinds of measures mm-hmm. either. You know, like HIV stuff. Like you said, in your community, it just wasn't even talked about um, or it was just, you know, totally absent. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it, you know, fits in with, with that sort of bigotry. Do
1: you still identify as a
2: Christian? I identify as spiritual. Um, I, I, I dabble in a lot of different religions. It's kind of weird because what I tell people is that I like to go to what I need in that moment. So there's mm. some days where I just need to go to a temple and be silent and just meditate and, and kind of like just still my thoughts. And then there's times where I want to go to a Christian church and hear a message that is more of a uplifting, there's hope, all these types of things. Um, I want to be around the music and the worship because that I identify with that part of church, of uh, just like the, the connection through music. And then there's times where I want to go to a synagogue and be a part of the services or a mosque. Or, so I, I find myself being kind of entwined in all of the religion because I feel we're so connected throughout each thing. And the unfortunate thing is people are so disconnected because of their beliefs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the reason I asked was because this kind of uh, unabashed love for your fellow humans, and uh, is is what my understanding of of I'm not a Christian, but what I understand like the true essence of Jesus' teachings. When you really get down to it, is that you should like love and support the people around you, which seems very fundamentally Christian, and that this message sometimes gets somehow. Often gets distorted by, like you said, like politicizing stuff. And so, I was just curious if you felt like your upbringing um, had an impact or an influence on why you are this advocate, supporter, lover, uh, fierce, beautiful, kind person that you are now.
2: Yeah, I. Great question. I always was grown up t- uh, taught that Jesus loves all the little children. And there was that song that, we, like, we sing in church was Jesus Loves All the Little Children of the World. Jesus Loves
0: Me. Oh, I was thinking of the other one. Jesus Loves Me. Yes, I know.
2: That, <laughs> I remember. I don't the do song. songs. There was, there, there's a song. Uh, Jesus uh, Loves All the Little Children. Whether red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight.
1: Oh, my God. And red, yellow, black, and white? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So— which is like kind that's of racist, kind, but no, at least sorry, he's saying he loves that. That. That's not yeah. kind of racist. That is fully racist. That's so like, some, that's like the fucking. Racist. it's a
2: small world shit. Anyway, carry on. Kind of, yeah. So we would sing that um, <laughs> in that like every single Sunday morning in Sunday school. And my perception of that is that we live in a really diverse fucking world. And no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done in life, You're deserving of love and compassion and understanding because I think what a lot of people do, regardless if you're religious or not, is not, we don't understand each other. We don't take the time to understand each other. We take the time for people to try to understand us and our thoughts and our beliefs instead of saying, hey, I want to get to know you and understand you and how you operate and really build meaningful connection with each other. And I think that's where... uh,
0: So it sounds like you took away some positives from that community in terms of loving everyone and supporting everyone. Absolutely,
2: And even like um, growing up, there was gay people in our church and they had like a a whole group for gay people that were trying to navigate their sexuality. I don't think it was conversion therapy. I just think it was more like, let's try to figure out our life and being Christian and gay. But... um, I just I never judge people in the church. I never got that and I never understood how people could judge other people in the church because if you read the Bible and you read scriptures and you read a lot of different religious scriptures from different religions, the common theme is that the the different places of congregating are meant for people who are broken and who um, are looking for something to validate in their life and to shun people who are looking for love or looking for acceptance or looking Mm. for a community so that they can heal inside this fucked up world that we have. Um, I think that is the, that's like the, the core value of what church is. And I think right now it's being skewed because of money, because of politics, because of, um, dogma in regards to trying to, Cut and paste what scripture applies here and there. And I think a lot of people just, I think church is really not what it used to be.
1: And also because there's like a lot of fucked up things within the various churches. Like when you say Jesus loves all the little children, I'm like, and so do the Catholic priests. So it's, it's, uh, (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. I just didn't (laughs) say it. Great minds think alike, babe. But I'm glad you did. Uh, That's that's also. that's a common
2: theme though yeah that is a very common theme in the church because i am
0: but i want to say that that's because of like sexual oppression for sure
2: that and then also the vulnerability of children within the church because they're taught to um respect your elders and all these different kind of layers of um adultism within the church. And so Mm -hmm. if you were to say no.
0: And not necessarily about consent and body autonomy.
2: And so as a survivor of sexual assault in the church, I also can like attest to when you Mm -hmm. do speak out about sexual assault in a church setting, that is the quickest thing to be shut down and to like kind of change the subject to like figure out something else to talk about. Because the second I... Started opening up about my sexual assault at 18 years old. The very first thing was, well, he doesn't need to speak about that inside the church. He needs to figure it out, go. And that was a part of why I went into conversion therapy because I I was processing my sexual assault. And I'm sorry, that just
1: makes me, that makes me, that's crazy. So you You have have this church that has to be fixed because you got sexually assaulted is just so fucked up. Yeah. And then they're saying that's the reason that you're gay. But, like,
0: if that was... If they really believe that's true, then they caused it?
2: Well, it's really fucked up because they were like, oh, he always had homosexual tendencies, so he probably wanted it. And that was the word for word. Yeah. And so that was, like, the the kind of narrative that was given to the entire church was, oh, he was struggling with his sexuality and he just kind of slipped up. And even though I was underage and this person that sexually assaulted me is still on the stage singing <gasps> praise and worship songs to the church every single Sunday and I'm calling him out on wow. it. Wow. Fuck yeah. that. But also...
0: How do you think you're able to still offer like love and appreciation for the church? Because I'm hearing that this was a place where you um, received a lot of shame, received a lot of hatred, had a sexual abuse or assault happen to you. Like, how are you able to still um, be open to, you know, the the word of God or just church in general? I know that, like, you know, not every person represents the values of Christianity, but, like, I'm just hearing a community that, like, really pushed you Mm -hmm. away in a lot of ways. And I'm curious, like, what made you want to still be connected to that in any Uh, way?
2: It took a couple of years for me to really understand because there was many, many years that I just didn't go to church at all. Like the thought of church, the thought of God, the thought of Jesus was just a complete turn off to me. And then I started Mm -hmm. finding out about transformative and restorative justice and Mm -hmm. understanding how to move past my hurt. And so a couple of years ago, I was able to sit down with my uh, abuser and really just have a conversation of, I want to know why you did this to me. And I want to hear exactly from your mouth of where you were so that I can understand better of what caused you to do this to me so that I can heal myself and move forward. And that was just such a powerful conversation, even as awkward as it was. So they did respond. Was. They yeah. gave you it. Wow. Yeah, they gave me that conversation because they felt like I, like I had somehow consented to it. So just having that, that open conversation with them of this is what i my experience was and what his experience was and just really coming to a place where i understand you did this really fucked up thing but also being able to move forward and say you know what you've done like you've gone through what you needed to go through uh consequence wise and i can move forward knowing that you have received your punishment and that i can be healed knowing that I understood exactly what happened that
1: night. Wow.
0: Yeah. And just to say for like listeners, you know, not everyone feels like it's part of their healing journey to confront Mm -hmm. their abuser, but some people feel like it is. Um, So there's, you know, a lot of diversity in finding um, healing and processing and peace that, that doesn't include that. But for some people it feels important. For sure.
2: And healing is not a one size fits all thing. Mm. Um, Healing Right. Healing comes in a process because there was a time where you just even hearing his name, I was just like, Mm-mm. like I would get sick to my stomach, and like I, I finally got to a point in my life where I had processed my own internal struggle in my own internal kind of situation around the sexual assault, and I was strong enough in myself to know, okay. If I sit down with this person, I know that I am I can handle whatever he has to say. And that took a long time to get there.
1: Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for, for sharing that journey with you and for uh, continuously supporting other people in their journey of healing and self-acceptance and self-love. Um, I think you're doing goddesses work. <laughs> um so, so yeah, it's been such a, a joy to talk to you. I'm sure our listeners are going to want to follow up and with you and see all that you're working on. So how can people find you on
2: the internet? For sure. So people can find me or hire oh, yeah. you. Um, so people can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Benjamin DeCosta, D-I-C-O-S-T-A. And the, they can find me on Facebook, and if they want to hire me, you could just DM me on any of my platforms and I'll connect you with my management team. Um, and, yeah. Also, if you I, want to look at his
1: really cute pictures, you should do that too because, like, he's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Benji's, Benji's pretty pictures, pretty. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> oh.
0: I, want to end, I want to end with a quote that I can't take credit for because Simone found it, but it was a quote that you gave uh, in another article. Um, where did you find uh, which, it, Tom? I don't know what quote you're going to— I think the biggest threat. um,
1: I think you just had an interview uh, with the advocate?
2: With courts.
1: With courts. courts Yeah, with courts. And you talk about what the biggest threat is uh, the biggest threat to men in America.
0: Yeah. So the the quote I just wanted to share with everyone that that you said um, is I think the biggest threat to men in America is the fear of meaningful connections with other men. Toxic masculinity fuels our culture and our relationships with each other. This fear is taught at a very young age that men must be hard, independent, and emotionless in order to be desired as a male in society, which then turns into toxic behaviors, fear of loneliness, and rejection. So, um, And I feel like you are challenging toxic masculinity, and we are so mm-hmm. grateful for that. And I'm
2: so grateful for you two as well for embracing sexuality in such an amazing diverse intersectional way and just kind of spreading all of your magic and sprinkles and all that no. good stuff Aww.
0: Thank, <gasps> thank you, you. Oh, thank gosh. you we love it feel free yes, to keep complimenting um, us and thank, you, and thank <laughs> you i'm still waiting
2: for my i'm still waiting for my 10 second countdown so i could jack off
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just hold on a second. <laughs> our favorite, our favorite person
0: to listen to on Vivid Radio was this guy, and if you want to, you know, um, reach out to their shows. Uh, we're not doing our Vivid show anymore, um, but it was a, it was a fun time. Uh, but on the April Flores show, there's this one guy that she counts down, and at the end, he always says like "blast." She says "blast off" <laughs> for him. Have you heard I that guy? That. And then he like screams. Oh, I love that. It is like a very intense. Oh. Very bad. So well, before moment. we
1: blast off for us, I just want to thank all of our lovely listeners to tuning into this really interesting episode. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at slutscholars. Scholars. You can email us at sluts at gmail.com, which we absolutely fucking love. And also, if you like Sluts and Scholars and want us to keep going, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes because that really super duper helps. Thank you.